Thursday night, there were four men that gave their lives, who paid the ultimate sacrifice. Brett Thompson, Patrick Zemarita, Michael Kroll, Michael Smith, and Lorne Ahrens. Six others, I believe, who also took gunshot wounds and are in critical condition. Some of them are still in the hospital today. There'll be a series of funerals that will go on for the next few days, honoring and memorializing these men who were killed in the line of duty while they were protecting citizens who had a right to protest. We know we live in a free society. We live in a nation where we, we protect those who want to have the right to speak. And that's what I like about our nation. We can agree to disagree, and you have the right to speak differently than what I believe, and we honor that right, we protect that right, we preserve that right, and these men were protecting those who, who some within themselves were protesting against the very people that were protecting them, and some were just there to, you know, to, to claim their right, and there were some who were hugging police officers while they were taking photographs, and it was just a myriad of different people, and, and four, originally four were shot, and then eventually five killed, and many were were wounded. And I heard some of the family members over the last few days talk about their loved ones. And, and I've heard officers who have described what they go through every day as they leave their home and telling their wives and their children, their family and their friends that, you know, I'm leaving to go to work today and I may not come back. These men and women who out of honor and respect and a call of duty who have been called and who have committed themselves to give their lives so that we can be protected and who can serve us so that we can be free in this nation and, and, and to, to exercise our rights as United States citizens often lay down their lives for our freedom. And they're not perfect people. As we've already described in this room, the only one perfect is me, right? Not. And they do make mistakes, and they are not perfect people. None of us are perfect. And yet in spite of their imperfections, they have this call to duty to protect and preserve the rights of, of, and to enforce the laws so that we can be free and we can go about life day to day in our society, in our country. And, and for that, we should honor them and thank them for their service. 99.9% of them are wonderful people who are sacrificially serving and giving their lives for our protection and for our watch care. And these men and women are all around us every day who may not, every time they leave the house, think, I may not today come home as they lay their lives on the line to protect and to preserve our freedom. I thought about our lesson today in John 21, verse 18 and 19. In light of what has happened, I couldn't have planned this better because here we see in the study service or sacrifice in service for the glory of God. There's, there's a sacrifice, there's a suffering when we serve. You see, what Christ is calling Simon Peter and those of us who are his disciples is a call to serve, but it's a call to serve that is willing to lay our lives literally on the line for that service. In other words, there's going to be a cost, there's going to be a sacrifice, there's going to be a cross that we each will have to lift up and carry if we hope to serve Jesus. And we do it not for our own glory, but we do it for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's not a matter of if suffering is going to happen when you serve Christ. It's a matter of when it will happen. There will be some suffering. There will be some sacrifice for every one of us as disciples. Now, for some of us, there will be a smaller sacrifice, but for others, there will be a large sacrifice. It's interesting that God doesn't require the same sacrifice from all of us, but he does require a sacrifice, and that sacrifice will be costly. And as we sacrifice that which we have been called to sacrifice in our service to Christ, in our obedience to him, as we follow him, we do it for his glory. We do it for the edification of the King of kings and the Lord of lords so that his name would be glorified in our land and in our nation. So John 21, verse 18 and 19, we see here the words that Simon Peter is is hearing from Jesus as Jesus now turns to him once again in this narrative to address Simon Peter particularly in helping him understand what the end of his life is going to look like. How many of you would like to know what the end of your life is going to look like right now. Anybody? Well, you're awful brave. I'm not sure I would. I'm not sure I want to know what the end of my life is going to look like or how it's going to end. For fear that if I knew how it was going to end, I might not like how it's going to end. You follow what I'm saying? I can't tell you how many times I've visited a nursing home and, and seen people in a nursing home in the hospital with tubes and things sticking out of them, and I walk away with a sense of, of, of an awareness that, you know what, this is eventually where I'm headed if I live long enough. You know what I'm saying? I'm not sure what the end of my life looks like, but I do know that as I follow and as I serve him, there's going to be some sort of sacrifice and suffering in my service of him. And as I follow him, I need to be fully aware of the fact that it's not what they promise in some of the charismatic circles. It's not all about health, wealth, and prosperity. Let me say that again. It's not all about health, wealth, and prosperity. When you follow Jesus, it's not all going to be wonderful, fantastic Wealth, health, prosperity, the good life, eventually that's not the reality of what it costs and what is required for those of us who follow Jesus. And that's, I'm convinced, the reason why many people who walk the aisle and say that little quick prayer and fill out that little card and get dunked in our baptistry, walk out believing that things are going to be great now only to discover there's a spiritual battle that's going on against the enemy, against the flesh, and against the world that is hostile. It is a world that hates what we stand for, that doesn't like what we represent. They don't believe in the Jesus that we believe in. And as we seek to follow him in our cultural setting today, in the moral condition of our culture, there's going to be greater sacrifice for those of us who follow him. It's coming to America. We've been isolated and insulated for too long. And there are other people right now in other parts of the world who are laying their lives literally on the line and dying, suffering for their service to Jesus. They're watching their children being slaughtered. They're watching their wives being raped. And they they themselves are being beheaded because of their belief, their faith, and their trust in Jesus. And we say, that'll never happen in the United States of America. We better wake up. 
It's going to happen eventually in the United States of America. 50 years ago, how many of us believe we would be where we are today? None of us. None of us believe that America morally would be where we are today. And part of it is a fault of the church. Because the church has grown more and more secular. And we, we as a church reject suffering and we have this huge movement in our culture in the church today about this health wealth prosperity thing who's willing to to negotiate and navigate whatever is possible in order to maintain preserve what we have built rather than what god has ordained and jesus says to simon peter really three things about suffering that i think are important for us to understand as we move forward because he wants simon peter to understand specifically these three things first of all jesus reveals his plan he reveals his plan there's a plan for suffering when you sign the dotted line and you trust jesus as your personal savior and lord and you cross over that line there is already in place a predetermined divine sovereign plan in which God has for your life, and that plan is going to require suffering. It's going to require sacrifice. It's going to require death. It's going to require giving up some things and becoming some things and removing some things, but also adding some things. Where is it that we have learned somehow in the Christian faith that, that, that when we place our faith and trust in Christ, that it's all positive and there's nothing involved in cost or sacrifice in service? Because actually the world doesn't revolve around you. I've been with Owen Taylor Boswell for a week doing missionary work. <laughs> And he's, what, 14, 15 months old? And the world revolves around him. And he has yet to understand and know the meaning of sacrifice. But he's learning. And fortunately, some of us as, as adults have not learned the meaning for sacrifice. Because we continue to make it all about us. And what's good for us was beneficial to us. And Jesus turns in verse 18 in chapter 21. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. Truly, truly means he's, what I'm saying to you is the truth. This is divine truth. I, Jesus, say to you, Simon Peter, he is singling Simon Peter out. When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. He's alluding to the fact that I believe not only was he young, but this is pre-Christian. This is pre-conversion. This is before he became a disciple of Jesus. When you were younger, before you became a follower of me, before you became my disciple, you were self-centered. You were self-controlled. You did as you please. But now, as a follower of me, when you are old, you will grow not only physically old, but you will grow spiritually old. You will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Maturity embraces suffering. Immaturity rejects suffering. Let me say that again. Maturity embraces suffering. Immaturity rejects suffering. 
You want to know how spiritually mature you are? How do you deal with sacrifice? How do you deal with suffering? How do you deal with service? I see in this interesting, in this text, there are basically four principles about the sovereign plan of God for suffering in the life of the believer, especially Simon Peter. First of all, I learn here that suffering is indisputable. The the fact that God has planned suffering for Simon Peter and for us is indisputable. He said, I tell you the truth. This is the truth. It is an indisputable fact. It is truth from God. It is divine truth that you will suffer. You can't walk the line, trust faith in Jesus, and step over that line and commit your life to Christ and say, I want a life without suffering. It is an indisputable fact and reality where Jesus says that if anyone wants to follow him, they must what? Take up their cross and follow him. I don't know about you, but a cross means suffering. A cross means sacrifice. A cross means denial. And so you can't walk the aisle, fill out the card, get baptized, claim to be a believer without the indisputable fact that your life, this decision, will cost you something. It is the plan, the intent, the purpose of God. Secondly, I see that it's an individual matter for Simon Peter because he's addressing Simon Peter proper. He's looking and he's turning to Simon Peter. The other disciples are there around the campfire, but he's looking at Simon Peter and saying, this is an individual plan specifically laid out for you. You guys over here may have similarities with Simon Peter, but this is for Simon Peter alone. While all of us here have similarities in our sacrifice, in our surrender, and in our service to the Lord, there are similarities about your journey, about your pilgrimage that he has specifically, individually lined out for you. Isn't it amazing that God loves us and cares about us so much that there's a specific individual plan just for you, for suffering? God already has it mapped out about what he's going to ask, require, and demand of you in your fellowship, your commitment to him. It's an individual plan. Thirdly, it's inevitable. He was young and he was self-controlled, but now as a Christ follower, he is no longer self-controlled, but he is spirit-controlled. And what Jesus is saying to Simon Peter here is 100% a reality. It is going to happen. He's saying, Peter, you have, you have turned from a life of sin. You have turned to me as your Savior. Now you're on the path, and this path is 100% accurate, is 100% going to happen. You are going to suffer. You are going to sacrifice. There will be a cross that you will bear. Because he says, look, your hands will be stretched out, and you will have, you'll be carried to a hill, and you'll be nailed on a cross and you will die for me. He's talking about Simon Peter is going to be crucified just like Jesus. Can you imagine hearing Jesus saying to you around a campfire in front of your friends, you're not only going to die a horrible death, you're going to die just like me, Simon Peter, on a cross. Nails in your hands and nails in your feet. Lift it up. That's how you're going to die. But remember, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a death because he has committed to follow Jesus. It's a death that's been promised, that's been lined out, that's been planned out for him because of his commitment to Christ. I wonder how many of us, if we knew that was the end of the line for us, if we follow Jesus, we're going to die. And if we don't follow Jesus, we get to live the life that we choose of our own doing, self-controlled. Which one would we choose? Which one would you choose? 
in the flesh, I would choose this life. <laughs> because to me, it appears as if it's a life without any pain, without any cost, without any sacrifice, without any hardship. But that's only a lie from the enemy. <laughs> and the end of that choice is what? Death. Well, this life, sacrifice, cost, denial, a cross, and the end of it is death, right? So both paths lead to death, except one path leads to what? A resurrection. <laughs> and so he's saying to Simon Peter that this, that this plan is not only indisputable, individual, and in, inevitable, it is irrevocable, because once God puts it into his plan, that there's nothing anyone can do to stop it. How do we know that Simon Peter understood what he was talking about? Well, you go to the, to the books that he wrote. So we're going to do that here together. Let's look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, sort of as our illustration. Peter embraced what Jesus said, and we know that by what he wrote to those in the second letter, Chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Notice what he writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. What is he reminding them of? Since, notice this, I know, he knows something. I know that the putting off of my body, in other words, leaving this life, will be soon. I mean, when he's writing this in the second letter, he's, write, he's saying, hey, I know that my end is coming soon. He knows that his crucifixion is about to happen. But notice what he writes, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. When did Jesus Christ make it clear to him? In John chapter 21. He received the word from the Lord. He not only received it, but he, 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 he stored it away in his memory bank, and he remembered that. He received it, he remembered it, and he recorded it here in this passage so that as it happened, he recognized that what Christ had promised, predicted, or prophesied was about to become reality. The plan of God was being affected into his life. It was a life that was leading him to a cross, to a death, to a crucifixion, to a horrible death. Why? All because of his faith and his trust in Jesus. He embraced it. 30 years after Jesus predicted and promised this, 30 years later, it's finally now about to happen. And for 30 years, Simon Peter has lived with this in his heart and his mind, recognizing and realizing that one day this is going to become a reality. And here he says, it's about to happen. And he's writing this letter saying to them, I have embraced, I have accepted, I am living with, I am okay with the end of my life as Jesus said it would end. I don't know about you, but that's pretty phenomenal to me. Peter is, 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 is a hero to me of the faith. A man who is willing to know that the end of his life is going to be a martyr's death, a horrific death on a cross, being crucified because of his faith in Jesus. I wonder if we would be willing to do the same. But maybe he may not be calling you to suffer 
to sacrifice in this way. And yet your plan is different than his. What is he requiring of you to follow him? A friendship? Is a friendship really that hard to release, to let go because of your faith in Christ? Is it a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Is it a sin? Is it a a sacrifice in some other way? We often have a tendency, I think, that, that, that... I don't know about you, when people kind of tell me their story, you know, say, how are you feeling today? And they start telling me about your aches and, their aches and pains. You know, you ever know that? And my, my dad says, the first liar never wins. Because if you have some too, you listen to theirs, and then you tell your story, and your story is always a little bit worse than theirs. <laughs> you know? You know, we often have a tendency, I think, if we're not careful to see our sacrifice more costly and, and greater than someone else's. But the reality is, I think, that any time we're asked to give something up, to sacrifice, to give it, to do it, to yield, to, to release it, it's costly, isn't it, to us? But in comparison to Simon Peter and in comparison to what Jesus did, is it really that costly? His plan for suffering. Notice his purpose for suffering. He has a plan And in his plan, there's a cross specifically designed for you. And in that plan, there's a purpose for that cross. You see, I'm convinced that that God doesn't just do random things. I believe that God is very intentional. God never wastes an experience, a moment, a trial, a difficulty, a hardship in your life. All things work for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Right? Right? God God is not some oops God who just makes a mistake and does this. God is very sovereign. He is very intentional. He is very directive. And he does things with a strategy involved to mold and to shape you into the person that he wants you to be that reflects the likeness of Jesus. He is that personal, that intimate with you in a strategy to make you look like Jesus. Are you that valuable to him? Yes. He knows who you are and where you are and where he wants you to be. And he is orchestrating all of these things in your life to move you into the likeness of Jesus. And all of these things are not just haphazard. They're not coincidental. They're not accidental. They're intentionally designed strategically by God in your life to move you into the likeness of Christ. That's how intricately involved in your life as a disciple he is. And when you think about the thousands upon millions of disciples there are right now in the world, that blows my mind that he is that kind of a God that has that kind of attention to detail about me and about you individually. He says in verse 19, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. In other words, what John is doing on inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he helping us understand to bring clarity to what Jesus just said, that the reason why Jesus said this, he, he did it to show, to reveal, to shine light, to help Simon Peter understand the kind of death. The word death means 
physical death. It means leaving this life on this earth into eternal life, the kind of death that he would glorify God. The word glorify simply means to exalt, to extol, to praise, to lift up, to honor, to esteem God. He's saying, in other words, the reason why you're going to die this kind of death is to glorify God. Now, I think as I look at this passage, there are two reasons why God would have Simon Peter, or you and I, fulfill this kind of expectation. I see in this text there's an individual purpose specifically lined out for Simon Peter, and that individual purpose, I think, is to help Simon Peter feel good about himself. Now, I'm not sure about about how we might understand that, because I don't know if you, if you think, you know, if I'm going to, if I hear from Jesus, I'm going to die in, in 30 years, this horrible death on the cross, how's that encouraging to me? How would that encourage me? Well, it encouraged Simon Peter. Let's, let's look at his story for a minute. <laughs> Jesus said to his disciples, I think it was John 13, where he talked about the fact that he was going to die. And Simon said, no, 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 you're not going to die. He said, yeah, he said, I'll die for you before I let them take your life. And Jesus said, hey, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. They arrest Jesus. They take him, right? He follows in the shadows, finds his way in the court next to the coal of fires. And he's there warming himself by the coal while Jesus is being beaten and arrested. And they recognize him by his accent and by his speech. You're one of the disciples, not me. Second time, you're one of the disciples. No, 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 I'm not one of the disciples. Third time, you're one of the disciples. Well, blankety, blank, 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 blank. He became other than Baptist at that point. He said a few explicitives that I cannot tell you. He cursed. He swore. Not me. And he turned around and walked away. And as soon as he spoke that third time, what happened? The rooster crows and he realizes conviction sets in. Guilt and shame. Remorse. And he runs. We learn that Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, sought an individual encounter with Simon Peter. Paul tells us in, in the book of Corinthians, and had a one-on-one -on -one with Simon Peter. Why? To restore him, because Simon Peter was feeling guilty and filled with remorse and shame because he denied Jesus while Jesus died on a cross. And Jesus is constantly pursuing Simon Peter because Simon Peter is a guy who, who talks and who acts first and then thinks afterwards, not like John at all. Very impulsive, very passionate. I mean, he's on the heels of Jesus, and he's anxious, and he's willing, and he just, whatever it takes. I like that about him, really. We need more like him. Better to ask for forgiveness than permission, right? It's my motto. And then Jesus appears to the disciples in the upper room, remember, in John 20, and has this special encounter, and he says, guys, I want you to go to Galilee and wait for me there. And it is Simon Peter in 21, in the first couple of opening verses, says, hey, let's go fishing. And the other disciples, the six, follow suit with him, and they go fishing. And they're out there all night long, and they catch absolutely nothing. And Jesus, standing on the shore, waits for a while while they're, with all the effort they can, throwing those nets in there, catching nothing. He said, hey, boys, you got any fish? I said, no. And then all of a sudden, John recognizes Jesus. He turns to Simon Peter and said, that's Jesus. And he jumps in and he dives and he swims and then he walks and gets on the shore. And guess what? He finds Jesus standing next to a, a coal, a fire of coal, just like the one in the, in the denial. And don't you think that came to his mind? I believe it did. Because Jesus three times said, hey, Simon Peter, do you love me up here? He said, no, Jesus, I love you down here. 
Second time, do you love me up here, Simon Peter? No, I love you down here. Jesus finds out, well, Simon Peter, do you love me down here at least? He said, Jesus, you know everything. You know that I love you down here. I don't love you like here. Three times, why? Three denials. And that was a constant thing in Simon Peter's heart of his failure, of his weakness. And now he believes that Jesus is about to leave them and, and he's going to send them a comforter, but he doesn't understand what that means. And, and, and he's standing there and Jesus is saying, hey, you're going to die in 30 years, this death on the cross. And he's going, all right, that means I'm going to live faithfully for 30 years and I'm going to follow God's plan and God's purpose for my life. It brought great comfort and encouragement to Simon Peter at this time, knowing that he was going to be faithful to Jesus and die a martyr's death. And encouraged him. You see, I think sometimes God's purpose in suffering and sacrifice and denial and the cross is to transform our hearts on the inside. Because there's, there are no lessons greater than the lessons that we learn that transform our hearts than when we're in pain. Isn't that right? When you go through trial and tribulation and difficulty and hardship and we're suffering on the inside, God uses those to mold us and shape us and form us into the likeness of Jesus. But not only was it an internal purpose, it was a, an exterior purpose. And that purpose was to glorify God. He's saying, hey, Simon Peter, you're going to glorify me. The two verses that help us understand 1 Peter 4.16, that he accepted this greater purpose of God. 1 Peter 4.16 said, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, three times that word is used in the New Testament. And every time you see the word Christian, there's some people who don't like the word Christian or the title Christian. I don't like to call themselves Christians, but the word Christian is a New Testament word, and it's always used for authentic, true believers of Jesus. If anyone suffers as an authentic, true believer in Jesus, let him not be ashamed. When you suffer for Jesus and you are persecuted for Jesus, what do they try to do? They try to humiliate you. They try to make you feel ashamed by your, by your belief and by your behavior. That's not politically correct or you don't embrace this lifestyle or this moral standard because you're a hater not because this is what the bible says and so they they're bringing shame to you they're humiliating you they're trying to get you to change your behavior and your beliefs he said when that happens notice he says but let him or her glorify God in that name. Give praise and honor to glory to God for the persecution they're bringing on you for your beliefs and your behavior. Peter constantly writes about a lifestyle that is separate and set apart from the world. And because of those beliefs and those behaviors, persecution is going to come. And when it comes, give honor and glory to Christ there's another passage in 1 Peter 2.12 where he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. In other words, watch how you live when you're under persecution. Live an authentic life. We talked about this earlier this week. There's the moral law and there's the legal law. And sometimes what is legal may not always be moral. <laughs> live your life above reproach. All things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial, the Bible says. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, in other words, they're going to come and they're going to tell, say that you're evil. When they do, they may see then your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Your witness, your testimony as you're glorifying God in your persecution. When they come and they attack you and they ridicule you, they humiliate you, they hurt you, they, they, they scorn you, they hate you. Glorify God in that persecution. Live for the Lord. Don't, don't, don't succumb to their, to their choices, but live an honorable life. Live as Jesus lived. They crucified him on a cross. And he took that which he did not commit upon himself and died in our place so that we might live. He never retaliated. He never answered the humiliation and the scorn. He never returned evil for evil. And so that's what he's saying. And even the guys who nailed him on the cross, one of them looked up and said, truly, this is what? The Son of God. They saw God glorified through his life. There is a purpose for which God puts you through the suffering and the hardship and the sacrifice that you're going through. And that's for an internal transformation and for the glorification of God so that in that glory, people might see the glory and activity of God in you. And that will turn them to belief in Jesus, which brings us to the third and final thing, the priority for suffering. What's the priority for suffering? In this little phrase at the end of verse 19, it's interesting that he says, John, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and after saying this, Jesus then says to Simon Peter, follow me. Two words, follow me. There's a lot that we could say in just those two words, follow me. We could do a whole series on what that means to follow Jesus. But the word follow in this text means to travel with me, to step where I step. To follow my example. Follow me, he says. That me is a singular pronoun. Where he says, not only follow my example, but follow me exclusively. Only. No one else. No one else. Me. How do we follow only Jesus? you got to go to the Word. And you got to understand who He is. And how he lived and the example that he set and followed the words of Jesus. And the reality is there are a lot of people that are claiming that Jesus said certain things and didn't certain things. And I, we need to follow not men who claim to know what Jesus said or did, but exactly what the Bible says that he, that he said and what he did and who he was and where he laid the footprints for us to follow. I put on a Facebook here, if, if you're in, ever in a place where people are not preaching Christ and not teaching you to follow Christ, you need to find a new church. Because there's a lot of things out there being said that aren't Christ-like and that aren't the examples of Jesus. First, Second Peter 1.15, notice that he says, And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. That's not on the outline or on the screen, but it's a beautiful example of, of Simon Peter where he says, finally, in Second Peter 1.15, I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. He followed the example of Jesus, and Jesus' example was to what? It was to care for the sheep. And he had called Simon Peter to care for the sheep. Remember that three things? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend to my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. 
In other words, he was calling Simon Peter to care for the saints, to care for those who had already placed their faith and trust in Jesus, and like a shepherd, to feed them, to clothe them, to watch over them, to protect them, to keep them from the enemy. And there's constantly affirmation of that in, in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Peter, where Peter is admonishing those that are overseers to guard and protect and, and to feed and to clothe and to nourish the flock. And Simon Peter was, was exactly doing what Jesus, when he called his disciples, if you read a lot of what he said, a lot of, he, a lot of what he did, there's a large portion of what he said and what he did was to do what? To lead and guide, to feed, to protect, to shelter, and to direct the sheep. Those that are already disciples, he was the main shepherd. And one of these days, the main shepherd, the shepherd of all shepherds is going to return and he's going he's gonna, to hold us accountable for how we tended to the flock and how we cared for the community of faith and how we served one another. And I think we need to understand, like Jesus, that as a community of faith, we're responsible for each other to care for the flock, to tend the sheep, to feed the sheep, to protect the sheep. This is a faith community we're all sheep. And we all have, I think, shepherd responsibilities to not only be a part of the community of faith, but to look out and to watch out for one another and to care for each other because, after all, we're all we got. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're all I got. I need you and you need me. Help me. Help me. Watch over me. Guard me. Protect me. Shelter me. But notice he not only cared for the flock, but he had a commitment to the saints. And 2.21, 1 Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. What was Christ's primary mission? Was to what? The redemption of lost sinners, future saints. He came on a mission to restore people back into right relationship with Jesus through faith in himself, to redeem a lost humanity back into Christ. That mission, that commission was not only Simon Peter's, but it is ours. Because our mission as a church is to go and make disciples of, of who? Make disciples of whom? Come on, who? All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's our commission, it's our mandate, it's our mission as individual members of the body of, the body of Christ to sacrifice and to serve whatever is required so that others, future saints, might come to faith in Jesus and be a part of the kingdom. It was a privilege this week to represent you in Montreal, Canada. It just so happens that one of the pastors we support is my own son, my daughter-in-law, and my grandson. Thank you, Gail. Just for your information, I don't attend the mission meetings. I don't, I've not twisted Gail's arm to support my son. Uh, I'm surprised that they're still doing it, but there's reasons for that. He's one of the few church planners that we have supported that he keeps in contact with the churches that he supports. Some we support, and after we give him money, we never hear from him again, right? I mean, and he's, he's, he's just one of those kind of guys. But anyway, 
I got the privilege of being there this week and representing you on mission. Watching us as a church help support a young couple and watching the activity of God being so involved in raising up more leaders in this city that is so post-Christian, so antagonistic and hostile and angry toward Christianity. They despise the church. They don't like Christianity. There is persecution for anyone who calls himself to be a Christian. And you have to represent Jesus and glorify him in such a, a, a lifestyle manner through service and sacrifice and surrender before you can even earn the right to tell them about Jesus. And churches in the South go up there and think they can evangelize the way we do down here. Turn, burn, sink, or swim, do or die. What are you going to do right now? And they're going to say, not interested. And they go back home saying, those people are not responsible for the gospel. And I don't understand. What do we mean? I got to pick up trash. I got to serve. I got to clean. I got I to sacrifice. do those nasty things in order to earn the right to witness. But let me tell you what happened this last Sunday. Uh, there was a group from uh, Northwest United States who came, and they helped a lady move from her home. They helped about eight or nine people move. I mean, there's a moving day in Canada. Uh, last Monday was Canada Day. It's their Independence Day or whatever. And so that's the day that all Canadians move. That's when all the contracts are due. And so if you're going to move from one house to another, you're going to move on that day, or you don't move. So Canada Day is that day. It, I don't, it's Canada and we love the Canadians. <laughs> they have different traditions than us, and they think we're weird too, so that's okay. And so there's a church that helped about eight or nine people move. They just came with their trucks from the northwest part of the United States, northeast side of the United States, and just moved people. That's all they did, just move them from one place to another. They can't afford to move themselves. They have no money. And so with these trucks, they just move them and just, just demonstrate the grace of God. And just by chance, if it comes up, why are you doing this? And they explain, because we love Jesus, we love you. What do you mean? And so they tell them. Well, there's a young lady who they moved who came to church last week. She's never heard the gospel. She's a Quebecois, born and raised in Montreal. Been to church a few times, but had nothing to do with the church, doesn't see any need for the church. But she came that Sunday because some people served, sacrificed, and helped her move. And during the service, she was, there were tears running down her eyes in the service. She came up to me after the service, and she just bragged on my teaching. Yeah, I asked her, could you come to Wichita and be a member of my church, please? I love you. I hope it catches among all of our church members. But here's what she said. You're the first person I've ever heard open the Bible and explain to me what it means. And for the first time, I heard what God's word means. Just tears. Can I hug you? I'm, I'm one of these side huggers if it's a lady, you know. But it didn't work. <laughs> and... I don't know if you've ever been hugged by Aaron, but Aaron holds on for a long time, and it gets uncomfortable if you've ever been hugged by my, my younger son. And so I'm patting her on the back saying, it's time to let go now, okay? I'm, I'm done. And finally, I'm, okay. And then she just pours out more and just tears about how 
she understood that God loved her and he cared about her more than God cares about the sparrows. It was Luke 12, 1 through 12, beautiful passage where it talks about how God cares for his children. And can I hug you again? Okay. And then I got away pretty quickly after that. <laughs> no more hugging. What is our priority? I'm not sure what he's going to ask you to give, what he's going to ask you to do, what he's going to ask you to become, what he's going to ask you to let go of or latch on to. I know one thing, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you talent. It's going to cost you financially. There's going to be some sweat equity. There may be even a cross in God's plan for you, a horrible death because you are a follower of Jesus. But whatever that is, whatever his plan is for you, whatever he asks, he doesn't do it just because he wants you to suffer. There's a purpose in it. And that purpose is to change you inwardly and to glorify him outwardly. So that as you serve and as you sacrifice and as you suffer and as you give and as you work and as you do these things and you follow him in great costs and great sacrifices, you take up your cross. The priority is to, to build up the body of Christ and it's for future saints who will see Jesus in you and will be attracted to him like that young lady was to the Word of God and the presence of God in your life. Aaron said, Dad, I've preached here a year in this little church to all these Quebecois, and you're the first person that has ever made one of them cry. And I said, Son, it wasn't me. It was the Holy Spirit. Will they see Jesus in you? In all the turmoil and all the stuff that's going on in our world, the chaos, the moral failure, and the culture that we have, I pray that in those of us who belong to Emmanuel Baptist Church in Wichita, Kansas, they'll see Jesus in us. Let's pray. Set.